This is The Global Custodian. There's always a FinReg Angle podcast keeping you up to date with the latest developments in financial regulation. Hello and welcome to episode seven of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually as always by a cast of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy, Virginia O'Shea and Joe Parsons. Welcome back, everyone. Good to be back. Hello. Hey, I hope you've all had good summers. Um, it's been a while since we caught up. What has everyone been up to? Virginia, you've been, uh, been away, been on holiday? Yes, I took a nice long weekend in the New Forest, um, during which my, myself, uh, my friend and her daughter decided to go in the sea for some reason, which was uh, nice and bracing. So uh, lovely British holidays, as, as you expect. From when I was a kid, I used to do that all the time, but I haven't been on holiday down there for a while. So interesting. Yeah, it sounds like cold water shock more than a, than a kind of nice leisurely swim, I think, in the British, British waters, isn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> uh joe you've been away yourself uh well it's it's funny isn't it down the south of england we've gone from sort of high 30s to sort of thunderstorms and wind uh, and, and winds hailing wind so uh you know trying to find the time in between now I, I think i managed to get to uh the suffolk coast um <laughs> and actually did go in the sea there which is actually it was beautiful really is uh well for people who aren't familiar with the suffolk coast it's like the it's like the uh the northeast of the states, isn't it? That, that, that's, that's, that's similar beauty. Um, but it, no, it was, it was brilliant, and um, yeah, I haven't really much did, uh, been uh, doing much else. I've been trying to convince uh, the other half to maybe go away to Turkey or or Greece, but uh, alas, no. Oh, Joe, this this episode is sponsored by the British Tourism uh, Guide. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna. Tell stories about British holidays and not uh, going away. How about you, Sean? Have uh, you left Ireland at all? No, no. I think I'm bound to this island for a while. So we took a we took a two week holiday out uh, west of Ireland in Connemara, which was was nice and relaxing. And you know, it's a beautiful landscapes and whatnot. But you don't uh, you don't do your summer holidays in Ireland for the weather. But uh, aside from that, <laughs> it was great. Good, good, and we're all being robbed of our uh, annual Cybos trips as well, so we can't yeah. even uh, can't even use that for our annual holiday. Yeah, it was going to be a home game for me. <laughs> well, this that was going to be Boston, Boston this year, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> parents, it would have been perfect. <laughs> yeah. I was going to take a trip to Southie or, or, or Cambridge. <laughs> I wouldn't be going swimming there either. My God, <laughs> not in October. Jeez. Fun fact: Fun fact: I have jumped into the Boston River uh, on a on a holiday. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's exactly how you imagine it. Bloody cold. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so interesting summer holiday stories. Um, if, if this is still going next year, I hope to hear a lot more kind of Barbados and Croatia <laughs> trips. All right. It's uh, something to work on. But uh, before we go all FinReg today, I actually wanted to start talking about the whole back to the office situation. Uh, after all, the kids are going back to school. So is it time the adults went back to the office? Um, Joe, what, first up, what are you hearing the banks are doing at the moment? I'm sure you've written a couple of stories throughout the summer about uh, different stances. What's the uh, what's the overall feeling? Do you think, or is it a real mix and a different between each organisation? I mean, it's it's very different. I think what we've seen um, the, the the front office of a lot of these banks, um, the trading desks. I don't think they've really moved. Um, either they've had their setups, their Bloomberg setups from home, or they've been in the office every day but it seems to be that that most of the banks want to get their sort of front office staff all back to work i think there was a story 
that sort of Goldman Sachs sort of penned a, a very nice letter trying to encourage and persuade <laughs> everyone to come back into the office. Um, but then, you know, when you go to those sort of middle and back office roles, um, they seem to be very much carried out from home. Um, and the main one, you know, the, the big story from yesterday with with, with BMY Mellon saying, well, sending pretty much most of their sort of 34,000 st- uh, global staff to, to, to work from home for the rest of the year. Mm. So it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, w- at what point do 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 we say, you know, everyone can go back into the office? It's, it's, it doesn't really seem to be an answer for it. No, and I think Boris is trying to urge people back today, but uh, obviously it's a, it's a global decision and, and not one of the, just one government. Uh, Virginia, I know you've been hearing talk of people going in and out of the office to answer faxes throughout the summer. So, what what do you think of the whole back to work situation? Do you think do you think people need to go back into the office in in the security services industry? I mean, I've had quite a lot of conversations with people that, you know, generally work in Canary Wharf and not many people want to get crammed into those lifts to go up those, you know, tower blocks um, because it takes hours anyway, because even when you're crowding in versus, you know, just impractical to have everybody back in the office. I don't think the government's thought about that too much. Um, So so a lot of people have been um, red teaming, blue teaming with, uh, you know, going in every so often to have uh, off-sites become on-sites, you know, so that, that people are having uh, discussions and and um, planning meetings in person, some of them. But um, to be honest, I don't think it's practical for a lot of firms to be going in en masse, um, largely because you, you just can't social distance in those buildings at all. I mean, even if they try and set it up on the floors, you can't do it in the lifts. So I think it's pretty tough. And I know that there's there's some degree of anger from uh, some of the, the, the opt-ed that I've been talking to about why the government's trying to, to well, it's just the tactics that they're using to try and get um, businesses to change their mind. And they're not going to, practically. Um, it's it's a cost-saving exercise as well, to be honest. <laughs> if you think about it practically, they spent, they spent a lot of money on rent. Um, and if you can downsize markedly, I think that's been a lot of discussions I've had of people thinking about downsizing over the next couple of years and not having to have so many buildings spread across London because you don't need them if, if you are having people in rotation. Uh, I think we've had, we've, we're have we going to have a, a, a change in the mentality about um, working in the office versus working from home. People will have yeah. more options and flexibility. Yeah, and that's definitely happened already. But you've got to think of uh, save our Starbucks and save our prison managers. We need to get people back in the office. Uh, My Joe, heart bleeds. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Virginia, you strike me as more of an independent coffee shop kind of person anyway, so uh, probably doesn't apply to you. <laughs> Joe, you went to Canary Wharf, didn't you, uh, the other day? What, what was it like? I did. It was, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a ghost town. It's quite... It's quite sad, really. I mean, normally you, it's a, a well-functioning ant colony uh, <laughs> with, with everyone, you know, keep putting their heads, getting their heads down and, and going between sort of the malls and all the different buildings. Um, yeah, it's quite a bit of a scene, really. Um, yeah. yeah, it's quite sad, really. Yeah, I don't think about it. It's not much of a sales pitch, is it? It's, uh, yeah, cram into a train to then cram into a... a, a a busy street or a busy shopping center to walk to your office where you cram into a busy lift and then go into an office while spending hours a day commuting and not you know spending less time with the family and when you put it like that it's uh not so much of a proposition but uh, like virginia said you know it's, it's a chance for some firms to save on on costs and and also people to have really have that kind of flexibility and a bit more of a 
work-life balance. Um, Sean, yeah, I won't ask necessarily what, what City are doing, but you know, your role, you feel like it's something you can do remotely long-term? I mean, can or want to are two different things. But yeah, like I can, I can absolutely. My specific role, absolutely, I, I don't need the office. But I think when we look at it, and when you look at it, I think lots of firms would ultimately like to get back to a place where a high portion of their staff is in the office, albeit with more flexibility as they've learned um, from the sort of last six months that the organization can function with more flexibility or remote workers. But I think there is sort of, a, I think a lot of the firms, uh, both banks and asset managers would like to get some more cohesion back around sort of having people in the office. Because um, I think it's, if you talk to a lot of people now, I think there is some, what I would say, fraying um, of that sort of team cohesion uh, we all went out at the same time. We were all on project. We were all in it together. But now, how do you onboard staff in this environment? How do you sort of continue to build culture? So I think there is. I'm a, I'm a bit of a seller on this idea that we're going to go to full remote work from home for everybody. I think when the virus passes and things go back to normal, I think we'll absolutely be left with more flexibility. Um, and people and working from home a couple of days a week will have far less stigma than it did, you know, this time last year. But I think there will be a, a a general push uh, to sort of bring back office life. Because I think notwithstanding horrible commutes, I think a lot of people like the office life. You know, I think a lot of people like we're social animals. So I think people like that sort of teamwork. Um, and I think that's really what's slowing down people returning to the office now beyond sort of fear of the pandemic is that, as Virginia said, all the social distancing things you need to do within office space sort of negate the benefit of being in an office, right? So you have to social distance in the office. You can't really congregate. <clears throat> Lots of places have closed their conference rooms. So if you can't get the benefits of being in the office, I'd say a lot of people don't see the point of it yet. But I think we'll get there sooner than, sooner than some people think. Do you think maybe the the ability to go and meet clients and talk to clients and you know, there's a, a network kind of uh, custody industry. So do you think the ability to actually go and meet people from outside the organization is actually as or more important than just being able to go back to the office. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like, I mean, this is, you know, it's a relationship business and it, sort of working with your clients remotely, again, it's good, but I think absolutely there's a, I think that would be more beneficial um, in a lot of ways. And I think that's when you get to talking about like ecosystems or Joe talking about Canary Wharf looking like a, a ghost town. Um, it's more than just security services firms there, right? So you want to have, you know, lawyers there, clients there, auditors there, the whole ecosystem back to sort of allow for that interaction um, to happen. I mean, well, I, was, I, was, I was talking about this the other day, but the, about uh, there hasn't really been a solution uh, uh, to sort of client engagement and networking things. Uh, you know, we've, uh, we, 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 I think in conference, certain conferences, they've tried to, you know, try and do sort, some sort of interaction virtual room. Um, but at the end of the day, I think sort of, you know, providers that they want to put their arms around clients, they want to, they want that sort of social interaction. You can't, you can't, you can only really build so much through a camera. So uh, that's something that still needs to get around. I, I, don't, I don't, maybe you just you could just hire a beer garden, and uh, you can just everyone stand out in that. That seems to be the solution. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because we were talking about silos at, at the opening. Like, I mean, I think big conferences will be the last thing to come back obviously, because obviously the sort of dynamics of how the pandemic, the virus spreads. But I think, you know, we're going, in this fall, we're entering the period where all these conference organizers have sort of 
adjusted and pivoted to online, but it's not the same, right? Like you just, you know, people sitting sitting at your kitchen table and watching a webcast of a conference is not the same as being at a conference and those informal connections. And it's very hard to recreate. So I think that, I think something is lost uh, in translation. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what Cyprus is going to be like. I'm speaking at one of the main sessions and I, I, I just can't imagine what it's going because obviously I speak quite a, lot, quite a lot of the time at Cyprus and you get sort of interacting with your panellists is really, you know, you look at each other, you're sort of reading cues and, and seeing where <laughs> where people want to jump in and things. And it's tough to do that on a video. Um, and you, and you, it's quite weird just I'm mean, having watched it, seeing people sitting there looking slightly bored or looking at their phone whilst other people are talking. <laughs> Um, because they're in their own houses, which is, I hope that doesn't happen on my panel, but I've seen it happen on video I've seen online. So it's it's kind of odd. Or, or someone's kids come in and then and then they're sort of panicked uh, or, or an animal's tail goes past the, the, the screen. It's it's kind of kind of fun. It's funny, but it's not not necessarily the most comfortable setting for, for having serious conversations, is it? I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, I think I think the animal stuff can be excused. <laughs> I think people are just so used to it now. But I, I totally get what you mean that that interaction and kind of bouncing off each other. And you know, you, you know you've got to, on a webinar, you've got to wait for someone to finish. You know, a bit like you know, we experience on, on on the podcast or any webinars we've been on. So you're right; it's a totally different um, kind of atmosphere, isn't it? And I think you know, there's I, I really like the live comments. I think people are actually a bit braver in kind of asking questions. Um, through the through the live feed which is something actually we're trying to incorporate and something we're doing coming up but like you say you miss that kind of informal networking where that's where kind of the real the real talk happens and the real questions come out and the real relationships are built i think so you're right that's that's uh, very difficult to replicate let's move on now to uh some of the big finreg stuff so we've got a we've got two talking points today uh the first one is the review of aifmd from esma the other day uh, which we're going to start with. And then we're going to move on to the Shareholder Rights Directive 2, which comes into force on the 3rd of September. So something really good to to talk about today as that comes into force. But let's let's start with the AIFMD stuff because this is big development. Um, ESMA has proposed to the European Commission to essentially harmonise the AIFMD and USITS directives in what could be a landmark development for fund managers. Um, in a letter from ESMA the other week, the watchdog highlighted that the burden on managers which manage both USITs and uh, alternative investment funds um, is real. And the letter focuses largely on merging kind of reporting obligations that cover both manager and fund-specific data. Um, so, Sean, when this news broke, I, I came straight to you, firstly, hoping that you'd already read the, the 50 pages or so, but secondly, because I, I knew this would be right up your street and you'd think it was quite a big deal. So what yeah, what stood out for you and what are ESMA essentially saying? And I guess why is this such a landmark announcement, if it is? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously this is a, a pretty big deal for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think harmonizing AFMD and USITS has sort of always been out there in the ether. Um, I think it's going to be a challenge because AFMD is a, a manager directive primarily and USITS is a product directive. So they approach regulation from two different places. Um, and where you're in the big area, I think certainly for asset managers when they're looking at the proposal, the proposals from ESMA is really around delegation and substance. So right now, usage funds have no in the framework the delegation and substance requirements don't exist. They're sort of left to national regulators, um, and it's essentially qualitative uh, measures. And so what ESMA's proposing is sort of twofold: one creating essentially like AFMD has a sort of third, more formal delegation third-party 
regulation and the usage framework. And then secondly, adding quantitative um, criteria for what can and can't be outsourced. So depending on how far this goes, it could be a potentially hugely disruptive issue for asset managers um, because the two main FUD hubs of Luxembourg and Ireland, a lot is delegated out, you know, specifically portfolio management. Um, and so, and of course, this is all done the backdrop of Brexit, which is really sort of largely the spark that's <clears throat> sort of ignited this line of thought. And it's something that we've been, you know, as regulatory nerds have been talking about for since Brexit happened, um, <clears throat> this issue that the ESMA and the EU Commission is going to be concerned or is concerned that a lot of portfolio, portfolio management's done in London, which will now now sits outside the EU. So I think there is going to, this is sort of one of the underlying drivers behind this. And I think it's, it, but it obviously extends beyond the UK because usage funds are managed in New York and Hong Kong and Melbourne or wherever, you know. Absolutely. Um, Virginia, did you uh, get a chance to uh, join your holiday, have a quick look at the uh, the review? <laughs> I did, and I've spoken to a few people about it. And most people, I mean, London-based, I'm talking, and some of the New York-based ones, um, with a wry sort of smile will say it's, it is essentially just an attack on London and other centres um, on the part of the EU to try and um, move as much business as they can on into EU centres uh, for the to the detriment of the industry. I think that's the general sentiment I've got from people on this on this front. So um, certainly, there's been a lot of, of uh, consternation on the part of people um, in ops, uh, and and uh, it doesn't seem that logical, right? I, I don't think the the pain points. I'm going to do high air quotes, and you can't see me doing it. But the pain points they're trying to address really aren't a pain point in my eyes, right? Um, nobody was calling for this in the industry. Maybe, well, maybe some of the... Uh... <laughs> Actually, even I think in, in fund centres in, in Ireland and Luxembourg don't really want this. It's going to be difficult for them as well. So I, mean, I, I just don't see the need for it, aside from the fact that you know it, it's an entirely political decision, um, as, as many of these things are, unfortunately. Uh, and it's not really thinking about you know the unintended consequences of all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent right. I mean, I would say the like the harmonization, some of the harmonization isn't like totally out there, right? So like AFMD Annex Four reporting, um, you know, either love it or hate it. Most people fall in the, the latter category, but it makes sense for regulators to get the same kind of reporting from all collective investment vehicles. So like extending Annex Four to usits is not, uh, you know, not the most illogical idea, and it's something that. You know, most managers who have AFMD funds probably have usage funds anyway, so it's not a huge lift. So some of it's not completely out there, but I think Virginia is 100% right. The, the biggest part is a political push, not necessarily a regulatory push. Yeah, because obviously, yeah, the, Sean, the, the angle we I, I took and we took was, uh, was kind of around the reporting, but um, is that... Is that important enough and, and is that in such a need of a change that it's worth kind of redoing all this and as we're putting this out? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I would, I think, um, I mean, I think as we could approach uh, harmonizing reporting without harmonizing delegation and uh, substance requirements, I'll put it that way. So, and it really depends on what the commission wants to pick up. And because there's so much to unpack in the AFMD recommendations, that are essentially, as you said, recommendations for usage as well. Um, some of the well-meaning stuff probably gets a little lost in the headlines, right? So I think absolutely 
I think even asset managers would like to have one reporting regime, right? So one of the biggest bugbears of the buy side is that every regulation comes with its own reporting requirement and it's all asking for the same basic information in different ways, right? So like if you're running AFMD funds and usage funds and all of a sudden you have one set of reports, that's probably actually a win in them because you're still, it's not like you're not doing reporting. So I think harmonizing reporting would be welcomed by the industry, um, begrudgingly perhaps, but I just think there's just, I think it's going to get lost in the, the discussion, to be honest. Yeah. And there's also some stuff for uh, for CSDs to have a look at. I know there's been a call for uh, get an EU depository passport. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think ESMA didn't go as far as kind of recommend the creation of one, but they did say to the commission to, to kind of um, to, to look into it as well. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's the usual, I think, CSD part. There was an ESG part. There was, there was lots of uh, – it, it was quite a, a detailed – publication wasn't it lots of lots of elements to it well for the custodian point of view as well i mean the afmd requires you know any alternative fund to have uh, an independent depository um so you know maybe maybe with this one that we probably could see custodians given you know an even bigger depository role particularly in the in the in the sort of mainland eu yeah, I think that's, I thought the ESMA's sort of lukewarm at best endorsement of the depository passport was uh, interesting. I, I would I would be shocked if that thing made it into the commission's sort of final proposals. I think that's sort of um, one of those, in a single market, you should probably absolutely have it, but I don't think anyone has the, uh, the stomach to really push that through. I thought the CSD thing was interesting in that there's a proposal to extend depository liability to the the CSDs, so I think that's sort of as you know in AFMD and USITS five, depositaries are sort of strictly liable. Um, but once once it gets to a CSD, market infrastructure is it be, no longer becomes the liability of the the depository or custodian. So I think it's sort of they keep they being the as when the commission keeps sort of pushing responsibility and liability farther and farther through the the safekeeping chain. Yeah, big big news from from the other week. Uh, is there, was there any other angles of this that uh, Virginia or Sean you wanted to, to talk about at all? I mean, I could talk about this for days, but I saw spare you guys the, <laughs> the most of it. I mean, I think the uh, the two the 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 only other thing I'll highlight, and I'm sure in future episodes we'll be talking about this again because this is going to be. I mean, it's a great time to be a regulatory guy, right? Because this thing's going to have legs for years, but. Um, I think it's interesting that the ESMA has revisited the idea for um, loan origination, a loan origination fund framework. So this was something that was proposed a couple of years ago, was dropped largely because there was a lot of fatigue um, and not enough time to get regulation through before the last parliament dissolved. So there is a suggestion to create a specific framework for loan origination funds in Europe, sort of mirroring the LTIP and some other fund frameworks that have been created over the last decade. So I think that will you know, that will be an interesting thing to watch. Um, and I think the industry will be a little nervous of the proposal because to date, um, all the new front frameworks that have been proposed and created since the since the financial crisis have sort of not been successful, people hoped, um, and, I, and sort of a bit over-engineered. So I think that'll be a worry for, you know, credit groups that are running loan funds. Virginia, anything else to add before we, we move on? 
Not from the uh, not from the review of that, but uh, I just noticed uh, a few minutes ago, Esma's just released on its uh, Twitter feed that uh, they've, they've put out the draft regulatory technical standards for saying that uh, CSDR is going to be postponed until the 1st of February 2022. So something actually happening whilst we're, whilst we're talking about things. And um, there it is, everyone. Uh, uh, <laughs> weekly CSDR <laughs> catch up. And this time it's live. Wow. <laughs> what a moment. What a moment for this show. So oh that's, been, that's been delayed till February. What I can't even remember what the latest. I mean, we, we've been talking about delays. We've been talking about the rumors of them. Is that just a confirmation of what we'd already, what we'd already heard, what we already thought? A confirmation of the confirmation, yes. I think it says it's still subject to non-objection by the Parliament and Council. So we still we still haven't got that, but you know, there's hope. Yeah, I love how the EU works. It's awesome. You put these proposals out there, and then you have to like then the regulators because they don't have no action power, right? Um, They essentially have to cross their fingers and hope no one in the Parliament throws a spanner in the works, which is always a good time. Yeah, but it but it allows us to post so many different stories. You know, there's rumors of <laughs> delay, then there's appeal, there's a proposal for it, then it's confirmed, then it's confirmed again, then it hasn't been rejected. So that's, that's, it's a never-ending story, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. All those newsletters, Joe, we're filling with all this CSDR <laughs> story. We'll have to uh, hop off soon and, and and write that one up as well. So uh, yeah, well, look. Uh, unfortunately, this podcast isn't live, so by the time this comes out, everyone will have uh, <laughs> known this for days. But uh, we'll we'll always remember it. So let's um let's move on to uh, SRD two because I think this is a really good thing to, to talk about because uh, the Shareholder Rights Directive two is coming into force on third of September, and in my opinion, it's one of the less talked about regulations, certainly in comparison to uh, CSDR, which you just mentioned, and uh, the likes of SFDR. So, um, Virginie, just for anyone that's not so familiar, what is this regulation about in a nutshell? Well, so it's amending a directive from back in 2007, right, that probably not that many people thought about, but um, aside from people in in the intermediary role uh, and, and some of the asset managers in Europe. But Essentially, it's, it, this is all related to, to things like proxy voting, um, uh, remuneration of, of directors, identifying shareholders. The, the entire crux of it is, is to try and improve transparency for the end institutional asset manager uh, and institutional investor and advisors um, at the end of the, you know, the ch- long chain of intermediaries improve transparency around um, them back and forth up the chain of, of issuer communications. So, I mean, that's the goal, um, the way it's gone about it. There's been some amendments we've had back and forth, as usual, as we, we joke about, um, amongst the, you know, the European Commission and ESMA. And there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the regulatory technical standards. Um, unfortunately, the reason it's got buried, I think, is because so many other regulations came in, uh, coming into force at the moment. So people kind of have been blindsided by the alphabet soup of, of uh, regulation as usual. So I guess when I, I, I wrote a paper about it in 2018, um, at which point I was going out to try and talk to people, asking them what they thought about SRD2, and no one had heard of it at that point. I'm, I've been talking to people this year. Thankfully, most of the intermediaries now know about it. When it comes to asset managers, not that many people have paid attention to it still. So um, it's still a bit patchy in terms of who understands what their obligations and requirements are. There's lots of new definitions that have been added in, into the regulatory technical standards around, you know, what's an intermediary, what's an inter- institutional investor. 
um, what's a proxy advisor, that kind of stuff. Um, so not the most exciting things, but they're, they're certainly important in terms of, of um, how how meetings, general meetings are being organised, how voting um, on those meetings happens. It's interesting this is all happening when we've got uh, you know a year when lots of general meetings were postponed or cancelled or had to take part place um, virtually, uh, which some did uh, across the globe. So um, there's a lot of, you know, there's something needs to change around the the, the communication process because a lot of it is really in person and very heavily paper-based in terms of meeting, uh, voting and things like that. Um, but when it comes to sort of um, the crux of it, we we need to have, you know, it's, it says we need to have uh, standardised identification. Um, the transmission of shareholder information needs to be done within a certain time frame. There needs to be more transparency of costs related to this. And there's a big impact, I guess, on the long chain of intermediaries um, between the issuer and uh, you know, the end investor. So um, and a lot of those communications have been email based and things like that. Um, and within the time frame, you, you can't really um, have so much inter- interpretation. You need to have the intermediaries communicating with each other in a more standardized fashion is, is the is the crux of that. Um, and there's also code of conduct for proxy advisors um, and some things around conflicts of interest. There's quite it's, Again, it's quite a detailed um, directive. Most people tend to focus on the fact it's, it's around the, the stuff around the shareholder identification and standardization of that and the... Um, the transparency and um, impetus to to improve communications up the chain of intermediaries. I think that's all of it, um, Sean. Right? <laughs> Have I missed that was, anything? That was good. Just annual disclosures, maybe. That's impressive. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. No, but I think you're 100 right. It's sort of one of those ones that, for its entire life cycle, has sort of flown below the radar for the combination reasons you indicated, and it's just, and also, it's one of the like. And I say this being sort of a career back office guy, like one of the least sexy regulations out there. So it just sort of really uh, hasn't gotten the attention. But, it, you know, I think and it's probably um, I think you probably will see some stories in a couple of months about groups actually sort of coming to terms with the reality of the, of the new world. And, and, and from my side, you know, when sitting in a custody bank in, in the intermediation, it's really the sort of, as Virginia said, the standardization of communication and just information needs to move much quicker through the uh the chain of intermediation and i think that that's probably one of the bigger challenges from sort of an infrastructure perspective and they did they tried to get this moved didn't they this was one of the regulations they tried to to push down the line a bit because of covid and, and uh as okay. and what regulation did they try to push down the line right like i mean when we started this comp when we started the uh, podcast every regulation was trying to be delayed right because we were right at the start of COVID. <laughs> so like yeah. you can't, can't waste a good crisis sean <laughs> exactly i mean honestly the industry did pretty well get a lot pushed i have to say like when it comes to this one, I kind of understand why they didn't push it, though, because I think COVID has exacerbated some of the problems around issue of communications, as I mentioned. So I, I think that's why they did they decided not to, because it, it just it increased their awareness of some of the challenges, and they were certainly they were evident the fact that you know corporate actions teams, for example, and those that have to deal with this, some of this proxy stuff you know, hard push, they're dealing with a lot of cancellations of messages, they're dealing with, you know, God knows when general meetings that, you know, happened and that kind of stuff. It, the scheduling was a nightmare for people. Um, and, and I've, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to those guys this year, and it, it certainly hasn't been fun. 
Um, so, so I can see why the the commission hasn't hasn't changed the deadline for it because they want change in this area. It's it's long overdue to be approved. It's 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 something that has been a problem for a long time, and the vendors are you know there's, the vendors are trying to step up their efforts um, in this area too. So it's it's proved an opportunity for some as well. It's not just all negative. And, and you mentioned intermediaries. I mean, how are Virginia, the people you've been talking to, are some of them being the, the, the custodians and how is it impacting them and how are they preparing? I mean, I think it took a while, as I mentioned, for them to understand the full impact of it. Um, it will certainly change the volume and frequency of messages that need to be sent up and down the chain and deadlines that um, firms have to meet have changed. So you'll see much more traffic in terms of messaging going back and forth. Um, with regards to, to voting. Um, another somewhat tricky point is, is the shareholder identification stuff versus data privacy law. Um, so a few have raised that concern to me about, especially, especially if you're not in a jurisdiction or you're dealing with shareholders that aren't in a jurisdiction that's European um, or some that are actually, in fact, that have quite strict data privacy laws. So there are some concerns around that, as, as there always are. Um, with regard to identification. So I, I'm not quite sure how we're going to deal with those, all of those. But I know in, if you're in an EU jurisdiction, um, SRD2 takes precedence over your data privacy um, requirements. <laughs> so um, somewhat contentiously, but uh, and it's a directive as well, which is a bit odd. So you'll have national interpretation um, per country. Uh, some countries' rules have come out, some have not as yet, even now. And we've got, we're not that far off the implementation deadline, as usual. Um, you can imagine who those uh, laggards are. And uh, we've also got some rules from some of the um, more on its regulators uh, that are a bit confusing. So that's a joy as well. Um, so I've had a lot of questions raised to me by, by people going, oh, you know, the German regulator, Baffin, has, has given this, you know, this list here. These, these technical standards don't seem to make much sense. Um, in this context. So uh, there's a lot of questions going back and forth between practitioners and their re- national regulators, because uh, not everybody has taken the same tactic, as is the way with Europe. It's like herding cats, right? <laughs> I, I look forward to uh, maybe another show on the uh, the ONIT regulator power rankings, you know, who is the most to least whole episode there um great well uh yeah that's to look forward to that's uh coming into force on the 3rd of september um which you may be which may have already happened by the time you're listening to this podcast so good luck or uh hope it went well whatever the case is um so sean virginia joe thanks uh, as always for your thoughts um any anything going on uh virginia uh, and any plugs for you before we uh, we wrap up well, I've just put out my um, the industry first API digital maturity assessment. So everyone and their dog has been talking to me about API mature API strategies. So um, and, and this is particularly in the custody landscape as well. Everybody seems to be formulating some sort of API strategy. So um, plug to to go and fill that in because you're getting an instant assessment to see where your firm is. Lots of banks have done it already. And um, some have even been posting them on social media, which is interesting. Only the ones that have done well, I think. Um, but certainly that's that's something that uh, I, I can plug. Uh, so you can see, you can find the link if you uh, go to fintechfirebrand.com or you can look at my Twitter feed, at Pejnyoshe. Cool stuff. Sean, how about you? Oh, thanks. As always, uh, please check out uh, City Securities Services Insights at citybelocity.com backslash insights.
Thank you. And uh, Joe, we, we've got to talk about our documentary, haven't we? Oh, of course, yeah. This is a, <laughs> a, a, a brand new project. We've now become filmmakers. Uh, movie makers, that's right. <laughs> Virginia, I, sure, I saw it, it piqued your interest a little bit as well. Yeah, the industry first. Good God, I never thought I'd see the day. Custody and network management uh, with, with popcorn sitting there watching a film. Good God. <laughs> yeah, as part of that promotion, we're going to send them a review of popcorn. Yeah, we were, we were thinking uh, whether to call it custody the movie or custody a documentary. So we went with the... Uh, the more gentle title in the end. But um, yeah, so it's uh, it's been premiered on the 24th September. You can register on theglobalcustodian.com. And yeah, we're, we're super excited. Basically, we're our awards normally take place at the Savoy, you know, big gathering. So obviously that's something we can't do. And uh, we've, we've spent the summer watching what, what others have done. And, and really it's been months and months of uh, coming up with the idea and then months again of uh, producing this. But uh, we thought it would just be a a really suitable replacement, something unique, something that everyone can watch at home, but also learn from and a bit of networking. So we're going to have the documentary that's about 45 minutes long. There's some fantastic speakers from the buyer side, from the custody world, from the network management um, uh, space as well. And then we're going to, once that documentary is finished, we're going to have a live panel with uh, four or five experts who are going to discuss the, the documentary and also answer any questions that anyone wants to uh, post in the live feed that will be available during the documentary. So pretty exciting times. Uh, it's, it's amazing what you can do when you're forced to do uh, something something different and uh, something out of your comfort zone. So uh, yeah, we hope everyone tunes in and then Sean, Virginia, I think you two are going to enjoy it as well. It's going to be like a Michael Bay film of fantastic, <laughs> much, much, much more explosion. <laughs> Where are the explosions coming from? People's exactly. arguments? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> we're actually we we did a lot of the filming in a in a warehouse in in Southwark. So um, to be honest, it was quite run down. It actually looked like a bomb had hit that already. But um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Joe, you promised people explosions. Now we're gonna have to just just put one in at the end. Maybe we'll find a stock video of, of one. <laughs> yeah so, so do tune in and uh, thanks again for everyone for listening today do subscribe to the podcast so you uh, hear first about future episodes and also leave us a review if you've enjoyed it but uh for now sean virginie joe thanks very much you were listening to there's always a fimra gangle podcast with global custodian 